Hello and welcome to Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. I'm Maraid Painter, the state long-term care ombudsman here in Connecticut. I am joined today by two guests from Illinois. One is Kelly Richards, who is the state long-term care ombudsman um, and one of my peers from Illinois. And the other is Carrie Legetel. I said that wrong, Carrie. Jump in and help me out then. Legetel. Legetel. I got it that time. Carrie loves you. So thank you both for being with me. We're talking today about access to individuals in long-term care communities and what some call visitation, but we actually see as um, essential connections to family, friends, and loved ones. Um, Carrie has put a lot of effort around the country and working on compassionate care visits and access for residents um, to have those visits with family and friends and why it's so important. So I just want to thank you both for being here and I will pass it over to you to kind of talk to me about how you started the systems advocacy, um, why you started it and where you're hoping to go from here. So when the pandemic started, I was told I was no longer allowed to see my 33-year-old son. A little devastating, considering I live two blocks from the facility he lives in, and I was used to going over pretty much every day. So during the first four months where I had zero access, 128 days without seeing my son in person at all, I had called anybody I could think of, tried everything, got nowhere, um, and then around... Um, August, late July, early August of 2020, I had found the National Caregivers for Compromise group and joined them and then realized, ooh, somebody had started an Illinois page and I joined that and we started working together and somehow I went from going to there for looking for help to being the person giving the help. I wouldn't give up. I kept calling legislators until they would listen to me. I got very lucky that my state representative has a heart of gold and he was bound and determined to help. And we decided we would schedule a press conference and just really start going at it. They got us a meeting with IDPH. And I was, as I was meeting with people and all the rest of that, and they kept saying, well, we have guidance coming. We have this coming. And CMS would say the same thing, but no one was doing anything. Um, So as soon as CMS issued the, Compassionate Care Guidance in September 17th of 2020, um, that was all I needed. It was the foot in the door. We had something on paper to say, this is what facilities are supposed to do. So then I really started pestering IDPH to get us guidance um, and pestering anybody else I could in the state of Illinois to help us And then once IDPH finally did come out with their compassionate care guidance about a month later, um, our Illinois caregivers, we had been doing weekly Zoom meetings, if nothing else, just to have somebody else to talk to. And one of our regional ombudsmen had joined us, had been joining us, and he was, his name is Stephen, and he works with Kelly, and he was a huge help. And he would give me direction, try this, call there. So that's what I did. And over time, we figured out how to use CMS and IDPH's compassionate care guidance to try to force the facility's hands to get people in Um, because they were all trying to say compassionate care was only end of life, which is not what it is. 
Carrie, what was the timeline? Like, where were you in time with this? Because we know at first, you know, the CMS guidance was just compassionate care visits, but towards the fall, that had really moved forward and we were looking at having a more reasonable access, but you're saying that wasn't even happening then. No. So Illinois did not issue their compassionate care guidance until the end of October. Most people didn't even really start seeing it at all until sometime in November. So after my husband and I, even before Illinois had issued it, we had sent my son's facility an email saying, these are the reasons my son needs us in. Under what CMS is saying, we should qualify. You know, he had all kinds of physical decline. We could see a mental decline, all the rest. He needed his support system. And thank God my son's facility. Uh, we weren't quite failure to thrive, but we were headed there. Okay. You know, this was a, he's, yes, he's an adult, but he also was used to seeing his mom every day mm. for 33 years. So, you know, and, and you take them and, and you're lock, using the word correctly, locking residents in their room, you know, so they're not communicating with other people. So, and for my son, who um, verbal communication is his strongest suit of all of his life skills and he had a he has a roommate who does not communicate you've really put him into into his own little prison Mm -hmm. and it wasn't per se anybody's fault it was the rules it was what was going on at the time but I had to get in there I knew because of what my son has and all the rest if I didn't get in there and start getting him to talk and walk and do the things that he normally was doing you know, with assistance, we were going to keep losing skill. And that was my fear. So although well-intended, which we saw across the country and here country. in as well, well-intended directives to keep individuals um, free from the virus, right, right, from COVID, had this unintended consequence of really isolation. And what we see when isolation. people are, are put in isolation, even right. well-intended isolation. Correct. I mean, basically, we were protecting people to die. So many people across the country died of failure to thrive, you know, um, from loss, weight loss to dehydration, all these different things. We were protecting them, but we were protecting them to death. And we how were, did how did you connect with Kelly and your state long-term care ombudsman? So my regional ombudsman originally had told me about some of the different states doing their virtual state resident council, you know family support groups and stuff through the ombudsman programs. So I started watching some of them and I decided we needed this in Illinois. So then I added Kelly to my list of people that I was going to email and call until I got a response. I'm a little pushy. Um, And so Kelly and I spoke. Um, She followed up with a few other state ombudsmen and we decided we were going to do a virtual council to get people involved. Awesome. You know, we needed we needed, families needed support. We needed to find a way to give it to them and going using the weight of the ombudsman program added a lot of credibility to what I was already doing. Got it. So Kelly, um, what was your experience in, in starting this in your state? Because I know here in Connecticut, we also have a group of family members that have really worked with my program. And we learned during the pandemic that, for family members, being able to work virtually is a is a new concept, but 
really works well for them. And we want to be able to keep this going, not only in our state, but around the country, and then maybe even have a national family council that has representatives yeah. from um, all different states so that we hear from people regarding long-term care issues um, moving forward. But tell me a little bit about your program and how you started that. Sure. Uh, thank you, Maraid and, and Carrie. And I'll just piggyback off of what Carrie had indicated that she reached out to me um, sometime in the fall and we connected and said that we would stay in communication with each other. And then she circled back and actually the um, regional ombudsman that she mentioned, Stephen also mentioned it to me that there had been conversations with caregivers for compromise about the idea of having a statewide resident family council. And so when they presented it to me, I was like, that is a phenomenal idea. Um, and let me do some research, you know, and like Carrie had indicated, I wanted to reach out to some other state ombudsman to see what others had been doing so I could kind of replicate what they were doing. And so I did a little homework and reached out to some of my other uh, colleagues. And that was, I believe, in December. And we just strategize with my team internally and including Carrie and a couple of other regional ombudsmen and we had our first statewide resident council meeting in March and we now have them um, they're on zoom and we have them bi-weekly on Tuesdays at three o'clock and we are really building more momentum um, over the months we let the group um, kind of dictate what our topics will be because it's for the residents, it's for their family members. So we use them as a guide to help build our content. And we're just finding that it is so beneficial to residents and their family members. Um, we've had the Illinois Department of uh, public health present to us a couple of times to uh, just provide us information in terms of where are we now. We had one actually this week just to get an update as it relates to the vaccinations and all of that type of, all of those types of things. And I just think that um, the content that we've had and the, um, you know, all the discussions that we have been having on these calls have been very beneficial uh, and the content that we're sharing is just invaluable to the people that have been participating. And to Carrie's point, as it relates to the isolation and the compassionate care, that continues to be a struggle for us here in Illinois. Um, you know, I've talked to several family members similar uh, to Carrie having the same experience that uh, one lady in particular, her mother is blind and has early onset dementia and she was very disoriented and began to fail to thrive because her daughter was that person similar to Carrie coming in to provide that essential care that she needed, you know, feeding her, brushing her hair or washing her hair or things of that nature. And so we've had to reach out to IDPH and let them know about these specific situations so they can in turn assist us in advocating to allow people to come in to visit with their family members to ensure that they continue to thrive and that they're getting the care. And that frees up the, the staff in the facilities, you know? 
Um, if I'm coming in regularly to attend to my mom or what have you, then that gives a CNA an opportunity to go visit and not visit, but go take care of another resident. So that's how we have been working together. That's fantastic. And I, through all of this, kind of came up on the concept to teach people how to ask for compassionate care. And that's something we want to talk about today. So we, here in Connecticut, I know every a lot of different states will hear this, and we have a lot of different involved family members. Here, we've had a lot of access. I believe most of our homes, the visitation is very open, but that's not the experience across the country. And there's still many, many individuals that are using compassionate care visits as the way to have those meaningful interactions um, with their family and friends. And so or during periods of time when there is an outbreak. So Carrie, I didn't know if you could speak to what you've learned, how you've sort of engaged um, with other individuals and how to get those visits and what suggestions you would give um, residents and family. So and we'll give an example of, a, of, of first of all, of a, of a wife that I spoke with last night. Her husband is in a skilled nursing facility. He is on hospice. The facility is currently an outbreak. They will not give her compassionate care with what they've told her it, because he's not end of life. And I'm like, compassionate care, just, first of all, is not end of life. CMS has made that very clear. Compassionate, very clear. Yes. Compassionate care is, you know, a decline of any kind, you know, depression, failure to thrive, weight loss, mm -hmm. um, confusion, especially somebody who's just moved into a facility mm -hmm. and, who really is confused and needs that support system. All of those, you know, are reasons. Yes, end of life is another, but that is not the basis of it. And to keep so, someone from showing those incredible signs of decline, when we start to see right. someone or they express that they're having challenges. Right. And even with my son, as soon as I could get back in, I could start seeing him improving a little bit, you know, cognitively, especially I could see him talking more and, you know, being more alert and because there was someone to engage with for him. So the first thing I tell people about compassionate care is everything in writing, document, document, document. Don't do anything you need to request from a facility you request in writing. The other thing I've started telling people is ask for it to be put in the care plan. Your request into that care plan. Absolutely. The you know, that you've been deemed compassionate care, all the rest, because then if they're, even if they deny you, if it's in that care plan, the surveyors can find it. Yes. So that is probably the most important thing that I've learned from this. But mm -hmm. so I start telling people use cause and effect. So my mom's lost 30 pounds. She's not walking the way she used to. And she spends 90% of her day in bed. Well, there's the cause of why she needs compassionate care. How am I as her daughter going to affect that? I'm going to come in. I'm going to sit with her and help her eat and encourage her to eat so we can get some weight back on her. You know, I'm going to, you know, assist her and, and encourage her to get out of bed and, you know, get in the chair, maybe get out of her room. So cause and effect to absolutely everything. That level of support. Okay. Um, and don't make your request to just one person at your facility. Um, I tell people always, at least your administrator and your director of nursing. Mm -hmm. If there's more people you could include in that email, include it. 
tell them that you want a response in writing by email and give them a timeline. You expect to hear a response within so many days because compassionate care, it's important. We're here helping take care of our loved ones. It shouldn't sit on somebody's desk for four weeks. I could see three or four business days. Mm -hmm. Um, and asking for a, a care plan meeting. Like you don't have to wait. We, exactly. we tell people all the time. They think, well, we, I don't, we just had our care plan meeting. Now we feel like we need to wait. You don't need to wait. No. You can ask for a care plan meeting. You can ask for updates to your care plan at any time. It's supposed to be a living, breathing document that describes the individual and what they want as far as their goals and their life. And making sure that the facility understands you can't accomplish this in 15 minutes. Correct. You need an hour-long care plan meeting or whatever you know it's going to take. Um, The other, and, you know, and the minute that the local facility tells you no, go right over their head. Figure out who corporate is. Start emailing people at corporate or, you know, their regional managers. Don't take no for an answer. You know, the lady I spoke with last night, the local facility keeps telling her no. I said, that's fine. Get online. Figure out who they're corporate offices, who owns them, and start emailing them. Mm-hmm. I said, and in these, in the requests, I tell people, remind them what CMS says about compassionate care. Copy it, paste it into your email. Also remind them that CMS clearly states that compassionate care is, is covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. It is a reasonable accommodation. There could be severe consequences for any business that does not accommodate under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So we must use that as our tool. Mm-hmm. And pulling and, in the primary care physician or provider, whether it be the APRN, whoever the primary care um, team member is, we've been telling people to pull them in. Are, are they willing to say that there is not going to be a negative impact or decline to the individual because of the denial of a compassionate care visit? Because we were hearing that the doctor said, Oh, the doctor said um, people can't come in. Oh, the doctor said, well, then we want to talk to that physician and say, why? And are you saying that you're not going to see other decline and you're not going to have a negative impact due to this restriction? And often that was a way to call their attention to it and then have access to those visits. That That's brilliant um, because I've had others that, you know, produce letters from their doctors and um, and then the facilities are like, well, we, we don't have to follow that. Well, first of all, legally, facilities are required to follow an order, a doctor's order. So, you know, and I'm to the point of time, people, we will do whatever it takes to help you get in. You know, right. get it from your doctor, an order saying your loved one needs this. And asking for the yeah. physician to attend those meetings. You should be able to have a meeting regarding um any resident should be able to request it. And if the resident can't, the resident representative should be able to request to have a meeting and ask to have the physician present either in person or virtually to understand the concerns and that you want it documented, what's being asked for. And if they deny it prior to taking it, and we really encourage people to be very open and um, transparent with the nursing homes and like that, go to the social workers and write social worker, DNS, administrator, put your request in. If you're not getting the traction that you think you should and the response in an appropriate time, as Carrie identified, bringing it to corporate, but also asking for those meetings and being sure that they are 
um, true team meetings. It's not just one person meeting with you, but it's um, all of the individuals that are part of the care plan team, um, the CNA, the nurse. We just um, did a Facebook Live on care planning and um, one of our regional ombudsmen did it. And I was really surprised at how many people didn't have a real concept of what a real care plan meeting should look like um, and some of the responses that we got, but they should be inclusive of the entire team, the resident, and anyone the resident decides is an important member of their um, care team, family yeah. or friend. Yeah, and, and I would just like to add to, and use the ombudsman program. You know, we just had a situation where a, a family member had indicated that she believed that the only reason why the facility capitulated and did the care plan to the degree that you just outlined, Mairead, was because the ombudsman was involved. You know, and to Carrie's point, facilities like to do these 15-minute meetings for care planning. So getting the ombudsman involved and having that person to advocate that knows that you can have the doctor and you can request the nurse and the CNA and any other the activities specialist, any other person that you want to be present in that meeting to participate, absolutely use the ombudsman program to help you facilitate that. And the fact that your facility is required to tell you who your ombudsman is. They're supposed to have the information posted. Yes, absolutely. Um, and most people don't understand that. Really? The, no. Well, first of all, the number of people don't, that don't understand what an ombudsman is and what they can mm -hmm. do for to help mm -hmm. is the first hurdle with this. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing, we've been trying to do a lot of outreach for that. And just for people here in Connecticut, in every long-term care facility, there is a bright yellow posting, large posting at the front door that has the information related to who your regional ombudsman is and how to reach our office as well as email and website. So you should find that at the front door of every building in a bright yellow, on a bright yellow piece of paper. Yeah. And then for um, us, one of the things that we're doing, our statewide initiative for this year is to create more awareness, like you were just saying, Mairead. Um, I just reintroducing ourselves to folks because we've been away for a bit as a result of the pandemic. So we're doing significant amount of outreach trying to let people know who we are, because to Carrie's point, we're still hearing, I had no idea that this program even existed. Oh, you know, I wish I had known two weeks ago or a month ago that you were there. So my goal is for the state of Illinois that our ombudsman program becomes a household name. You know, people know who we are and we need to tap into those people who are not ready or in the pipeline for long-term care. We need to educate them about who we are and how we can benefit because they touch other people. We're all interconnected. So if we're letting people know who we are, they can let other people know, you know, and how to reach us. Excellent. Absolutely. And that's where these family councils are so important and people like Carrie, because it's that word of mouth. They will know that you have a loved one in a long-term care community and that they can reach out to you. And that's why people from other states are reaching out to you. Well, and it's getting people to understand also that an ombudsman is resident driven. They're there to yes. represent the resident. Yeah. And mm -hmm. a lot of people are don't understand that. Or they're like, but they're going to do what the facility. No, they're not going to okay. do what the facility mm -hmm. says. They're yeah. there to follow the direction of the resident or the resident representative or both. And they will work with families. Yes, they have to go in and verify with the resident. If yep. the resident communicate that they want you there, 
but we're confidential and free. That I think is a big point. People don't understand that our service is free of charge. They think that um, if they use us, if they reach out, if we do a consultation, that after that, they're going to be charged. All of our services are free and confidential so that you can talk to your regional ombudsman, any representative from our program, and they only move the case forward, as Carrie pointed out, with the permission and the consent of the resident or um, the resident representative if they're the responsible party. Um, but they can give you a lot of information and resources to try to help self-advocate. But if you want their assistance and you want them to help you advocate, they can certainly help you as well. And, and they do. You know, sometimes it's... Sometimes it's a simple thing that you need the ombudsman's help for. You know, ooh, I'm just not getting along with my roommate and the facility doesn't understand that and they're not listening. Two other times it is major issues like compassionate care or, you know, any others. But the number of families that I have met with, they're like, oh, I didn't know I could call them. You yeah. know, it's it's scary. You know, we live in a world, you know, first of all, we have all these baby boomers. More people are going to need care assistance as we get older, whether they're, you know, you know, we all say, oh, we're never putting our loved one there. Don't use that word. Never. Never say I can never. Right. Absolutely. I was the mom who said never, as long as I was alive, would it happen? I, um, literally I was forced mm -hmm. and, um, in the long run, it was the best thing for my son, the best thing for me. But it was a very difficult thing because I was going to be the Wonder Woman mom who took care of her son every day of her life as long as she could. And, and you do. And you do. And so, yeah. but it is, it's a different type of care, right? It doesn't that's mean exactly it. care of him. It's a different type of care and different type of support. And even using compassionate care, people don't understand. Even when we move our loved ones in, we're still providing care, mm -hmm. whether it is emotional care you know, physical care, you know, even just some of it spiritual, it depends on the person. What do they need? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when my son is at his worst and he's grumpy and tired and the seizures are really getting to him, he's not going to eat unless mom's there, mm -hmm. you know, or my, I shouldn't say just me, but me or my husband, there's a very few people when he gets to that point that can convince him to eat or drink or the things that are necessary to keep him going. Right. For any of and us, right? Those people any, that, exactly, that help us go. Any of us. Um, you know, it's very difficult. Even now, you, my son's been in this facility for eight years, and I'm very lucky. It's a great facility. They provide wonderful care. But it's still a facility. So it was like yesterday, I was over there for his care plan meeting, got ready to leave, and one of the residents was in the hall, and she yelled at me. And I know I have to keep my distance, so I'm like, you know, and so she's telling me what she wanted to tell me and all the rest. And it's like killing me not to go hug her because mm -hmm. this is somebody I've known every day that since my son moved in that building. This is somebody that I've had a relationship with. You know, she was used to me coming in her room and sitting on her bed and talking to her and giving her a hug and being a second mom type person for her. That so, physical touch. I can't imagine this whole time. Yeah. So many people have gone without other than care, right? Which is different. Correct. That's someone giving you care that physical, emotional support and touch from another person that to hold their hand, to give them a hug, to just right. that embrace, how, how so, hard that must be. Yeah, so, and it's so hard. You. And you know, how, how do we balance safety with 
humanity. You know, mm -hmm. it seems like this pandemic has made us turn the corner on our humanity and we've lost it a bit trying to save people. And it's so disheartening. I mean, we had a, a married couple who had been married for 60 something years and the wife was in skilled and the husband, I believe, was in the assisted living and they just wanted to hold hands mm -hmm. in the facility. How can you not let a married couple 60 something years hold hands because you're scared that they could give COVID to each other. It's just trying to navigate that stuff and try to bring people back to the understanding that we're human first. Yeah. So Alex Spanko from who is now with the greenhouse project, he talks about, you know, the assumed risk. And there are times you have to let people just assume the risk. The, I, I helped a lady two weeks ago who, moved her husband out of skilled nursing. He was end of life mm -hmm. because the facility would not allow her. He was in a private room, end of life. He was vaccinated. She was vaccinated, the whole nine yards. The facility would not allow her to take her mask off to kiss her husband of over 50 years. Mm. And she's like, I'm done. I'm taking him home. He's going to die in peace with me, with him, holding him and his family there with him. Mm -hmm. This shouldn't be happening. Right. Um, there's so when I said I was 100, right, I was 128 days without physically seeing my son. And even then, it was only at doctor's appointments. I wasn't allowed to ride with him. I wasn't allowed to transport him. And I was told I had to socially distance at every doctor's appointment. So that didn't work well for me. I finally decided that um, I was bringing him home for a weekend. Um, and I would, we, A, we would assume the risk. B, that I understood he would have to quarantine for two weeks when he went back. There was no different from what he was already doing. Right. So. And I don't think your point, Carrie, I don't think people realize that they can. People have the right to leave the facility and to go on leave of absences, which are called LOAs, and spend time with family. There may be an assessment done on return and every building should have a policy in place of what that assessment will look like on return and what to expect. And that should be fully discussed with the resident um, and their responsible party or their resident representative prior to leaving. So they know what to expect when they get back, but that is absolutely an option. And it is. So when I finally worked all the details out, they knew they had a place they could quarantine him when he came back. So here comes the nurses bringing him out in his electric wheelchair and all of his medicine and everything else. And I looked at them and we were going to a doctor's appointment first. I'm like, can I finally hug him and kiss him? And they're like, go for it. Seriously, I, I even though what it did to him, what, what this did to me, mm -hmm. I was so overwhelmed when I finally could hug and kiss my own child that I started hyperventilating. Mm. Okay, because it was over four months. Yeah, yeah. You know, this my my son. It's a miracle he's alive. So, and the fact that I've been with him just about every single day of his entire life to not be able to see him for over four months and hug him and kiss him, it was truly painful. I bet, and and that's from your point of view. I can't imagine yes. from his. And right. you are one story out of thousands and thousands and thousands of stories across the country. We do have to wind up for today, but I really want to thank you both for being here and for allowing us the opportunity to hear about your story. And Carrie, if there was a way people, they wanted to reach out and they wanted to get more information um, from you or um, some support around that, how should they reach out? 
So um, Illinois Caregivers for Compromise has both a website and a Facebook page. Um, our website is um, ilc4c.org. Um, just, you know, if you get onto Facebook, Illinois Caregivers for Compromise, you'll find us. Um, it's easy to locate me through all of those. Uh, we actually have a YouTube channel also that has videos talking about compassionate care, how to request it. Um, I'm not hard to find. If you send a message, I will respond. We... We all have to help each other. You know, mm -hmm. I started this, started doing what I was doing to help families like myself in Illinois. I never expected I would be helping families nationwide. We all need a support system. The ombudsman program is wonderful. They can do so mm -hmm. much, but sometimes it helps to have somebody who's walked in your shoes, yep. who's lived done what experience. you're doing. Yep. Yes. That lived experience. And for um, ombudsman programs across the country, I would encourage people to go to the National Consumer Voice website. Um, you can go on there. You can locate your ombudsman's office and reach out to them. Um, they want to hear from residents. They want to hear from family members how it's going. We also want um, best practices. If you have an experience in a long-term care community where things are working, where you have found a way to communicate the way Carrie is doing and showing people and demonstrating what are some best practices to have on better outcomes, please share those with your ombudsman's office. Um, Kelly, I don't know if you want to make any last remarks. Sure. I just want to let folks know that they can reach the ombudsman program in Illinois by uh, either emailing our general email box at aging, A-G-I-N-G dot S-L-T-C-O-P R-O-G-R-A-M. So that's the state long-term care ombudsman program at illinois.gov and illinois spelled out awesome thank you so much and i want to thank you both for being here and carrie um, i was felt so fortunate to be able to meet you when i was in washington dc doing advocacy work and we are going to have upcoming podcasts on on that work related to essential caregivers we will be um getting you more information on that and Carrie and Kelly will be joining me on that podcast as well with one of our um, statewide family council members. So thank you all for joining me today on Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. Please continue to listen wherever you get your podcasts and continue to send in requests for information, what you'd like me to cover and how you would like us um, to continue to offer subjects on the podcast. Stay well.